Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you, and it is good to be back with you after being out last Sunday. Uh, I want you to know that we had a team of eight in Belize. Uh, in fact, I see one, two, three, four, five, six, so uh, several of us here this morning. Um, and I want you to know, church, that you can be really proud of the work that this team did, the attitudes, the witness that they had in Belize. Um, it was a great trip, great team. Thank you for your prayers, those who are praying, and uh, get ready because we're going back, uh, Lord willing. We're going to be going back. We hope to bring more with us. But uh, just a few of the things that we were able to do there. We uh, gave out food to about 200 families um, in more kind of remote villages of Belize, as well as leading a marriage conference uh, there in Roaring Creek, where we were being hosted. And so in partnership with Evangel Temple, a local church there, and the pastors leading there, uh, it was just a, a wonderful thing. And, you know, the reality is we don't go to places like Belize or Nigeria or Central Asia uh, to introduce the concept of Jesus. He's already there before us. We're not necessarily bringing them something they don't have. Uh, what we're doing is linking arms to say, let us help to make the witness of Jesus broader, bigger, and more impactful than it would be otherwise. In fact, one of the songs that we sang together in Belize was, I speak the name of Jesus. The same Jesus we're worshiping this morning is being worshiped in every part of the world by brothers and sisters who often speak different languages, have different customs, different practices, but we have this in common. We speak the name of Jesus. We believe and affirm the name of Jesus. So, Good to be with you, good to be there, good to be back. Um, and this morning, as you saw in the video, we're continuing our Jesus Is series. Seven unique statements that Jesus made, which all begin with the words, I am. These are claims of Jesus about who he is, and he invites us to test him, to verify if he is in fact these very things. Today's I am statement is, I am the true vine. I want to give you some context before we turn together to John chapter 15 and look at the passage together. Uh, every message is spoken into a context. There's a, there's a real life environment and situation playing out. And most likely the context into which Jesus speaks the words of John 15 would be this. Uh, scholars believe that Jesus is at this point in his journey passing through the Kidron Valley on his way to Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount would be a little bit adjacent to where the disciples are walking with Jesus, and where they would be in the presence of would be vineyards producing fruit. The disciples would have seen two starkly different realities going on. On the one side, vines producing through their branches great fruit, nourishment for the people of that region. On the other side, they would have seen and smelled and possibly even felt the heat of burn piles where branches that had been broken off of their vines and were no longer producing fruit had been thrown into a burn pile and discarded as waste. And in that context, 
Jesus said these words, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you, so abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The premise of Jesus' claim is that he is the true vine, which should cause us to recognize that Jesus is inferring there are other vines that are not the true vine. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I'm like a vine. He says, I'm the true vine, which means that there are false vines that others would have perhaps attached themselves to. If you were to hold a, a pile of ancient coins in, the, in that region of the world, especially Israeli coins in the Maccabean period, this was the time leading up to the time of Jesus, you might find on one or more of those coins an inscription of a vine. This vine was the symbol of the nation of Israel. Think of the way that coins in the United States of America have an eagle on them or the face of a president. There are symbols of our nation that come to represent who we are or who we believe we are. And, and the reason that the nation of Israel likened itself to a vine is found in Psalm chapter 80 where the psalmist says this, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. When Jesus is using vine language, the most likely thing that's happening in the minds of his disciples is they're thinking he's talking about their national identity. Israel is the vine. Israel is the people that God cleared out nations for and planted them in the promised land. In other words, they believe that the national identity of Israel was the source of life for the world the way that the vine is the source of fruit for those who eat it. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, before we beat up another nation of people for believing that their national identity was the source of good in the world, might we recognize that we who are Americans are in danger of the same notion? There are some among us who believe that, that if America could just recover some supposed former glory, we could once again be the hope of the world. Or others who believe that if we could just do away with old customs and integrate progressive ideals, we could then become what we've never been, the hope of the world. 
what Jesus is saying strikes a blow to both of those ideas. No nation, no political candidate, no economic boom is the hope of the world. Jesus alone is. He is the true vine. The, the, the metaphor works like this. Jesus says, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now that's a, a somewhat strange term, but I like it better than the King James Version, which says that my father is the husbandsman. I have no idea what a husbandsman is. I barely know what a vine dresser is. Let me use this word. My father is the gardener. My father's the one that makes sure things are working properly in the kingdom of God. So Jesus the vine, God the father, the gardener or vine dresser, and we who would follow after Jesus are branches. The most basic way to understand this before we dive into further implications is that we are connected to Jesus. It's the most fundamentally true thing about a branch is that it is connected to the tree. It is connected to the vine. Do you know that the the term Christian appears exactly three times in the New Testament? Now, that's the preferred term for the way we talk about who we are. Oh, are you a Christian? Or you tell people, yeah, I became a Christian when, but the New Testament only uses that term three times. In contrast, Paul, more than 140 times, uses this expression, in Christ. What would it be like to tell people, oh, I am in Christ? Well, they wouldn't know what we mean. But what we mean is that my life is connected to Jesus in an organic and whole and meaningful way. In other words, it's not that I believe certain things to be true about Jesus, but that my life is integrated to Jesus in a way that transforms what I think about, what I say, and what I do. I am a branch connected to the vine that is Jesus. What we'll do for the remainder of the message time of the service is seek to answer this question. What is true of a life connected to Jesus? I want to I point out four realities, and these all come from the John 15 passage, so we'll go back into it in a moment. But the, the first reality that should be clear of the life connected to Jesus is that it embraces God's purposes. The natural inclinations of the human heart are never in step with the purposes of God. Left to ourselves, what we desire to do, to be, and to accomplish in life is always at a crosshairs with the desires that God has for our lives. And and so something supernatural, something beyond us has to happen to change the heart of men, women, and children to be inclined toward the heart of God. Our natural way is not that. When each of my kids were born in the years of 2012 through 2016, Nikki and I began praying a prayer over them, with them and for them. And the prayer was, God, would you allow our children's hearts to supernaturally gravitate to you? We knew something to be true of our children that's true for yours as well. Their natural bent will be away from God. And just because my kids are preacher's kids doesn't mean they're going to naturally desire the things of God. In fact, experience would tell us maybe the opposite is true. Not talking my children, but, but how many of us have known the children of, of some person who loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but the children themselves didn't? You know the reason? It doesn't happen naturally. 
It is always a miracle from God when the heart is transformed to will and want what God wants. And one of the things that God wants for the world is that we put our hands to work. Now, the, the problem is because our natural inclinations are bent away from God, work becomes distorted in one of two ways. One is that we might have an antagonistic posture toward work. This is the person who believes that work gets in the way of the things that really matter, the, the spiritual things of life. I know of a young woman who recently told her parents, whom she lived with and whose credit card she uses frequently, that she had withdrawn from her classes and quit her job to focus on her emotional well-being. This would be the exa an example of someone who doesn't understand that the, the work of God, the purposes of God in our life, are not something that is a distraction, but they're at the very heart and center of the reason we were created. God created us to work. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says it this way, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to know that Genesis chapter 2 comes before Genesis chapter 3. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that the man and the woman eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin enters the world. And what happens is not that work becomes a thing, but that painful work becomes a thing. God says because of sin, now your work will not be pleasant and life-giving. It will be toilsome. It will be burdensome. You will work through sweat and against thorns and thistles. Women will bear children, and it will be a painful experience, not only physically, but fraught with emotional struggle and, and danger. So it is not that sin brought work into the world. Sin simply distorted the work that God intended for us. But others, and probably more of us, are in danger of a second pitfall, which is to be obsessed with work. This is the person who sees work as an insatiable opportunity to get ahead in life. If 40 hours a week are good, 80 are better. We have a term for these people. We call them workaholics. The term is grammatically absurd, but we all understand what it implies. This is the person who comes home from a long day in the office, 10, 12 hours. The family sits down for dinner and this man or woman pulls out their phone and begins checking their emails. We call them a workaholic because in the same way that an alcoholic cannot stop drinking to their own detriment, a workaholic cannot stop working and often with similar result in the life of their selves and their families. And so it becomes an obsession. This is the reason that God gave us Sabbath. He knew that more of us would tend not to be antagonistic toward work. We're created to work. God knew that we needed a stop point. We needed at least one time every week to take a whole day to say, God, I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. And today, I'm going to do nothing, and I'm going to let you do the work. I'm going to let you. It's a, it's, a, it's a vote of confidence, if you will, in the work of God to manage the world. It's not my job. It's his. When Jesus gives us the metaphor of the vine and branches, what it does is it rescues us from both of these pitfalls. It makes clear that yes, we are created to work, and yet really it is the work of God in and through us, so we don't need to strain and toil. 
Listen again to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. In the same way that a branch produces fruit because it's connected to the vine, the disciple of Jesus does good works because we are connected to him. We don't do good works for him. We don't even do good works because of him. What we simply do is allow the good works and the good fruit that God is doing in the world to come in and through us for the life of the world. He is the vine. We are the branch. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10, talking about this purpose for which God created us, said this, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Say, in Christ. No, I'm saying you say, in Christ, for good. We're going to try that again. Say, in Christ, for good. It is God's work coming through us. He does the work. He receives glory for the work. And when Paul says these works are things you were prepared beforehand to do, what Paul is implying is that God has unique opportunities for you because of your personality and the time and place in which you live to manifest his goodness in the world in a way that only you can do. In the 90s, greatest decade in modern history, we wore bracelets that, that said this, WWJD. We asked the question, what would Jesus do? And that is a great question because it centers us on the idea that our lives are to be lived for the glory of Christ. But it misses it somewhat in this way. Jesus was a single man and I'm married. Jesus had no children, I have three. So I have to not just ask the question, what would Jesus do? I have to ask the question, what would Jesus do if he were in my place with my personality? How would Jesus love and care for his wife? How would Jesus give time and energy and affection to his children such that they might have hearts that gravitate toward God? What would Jesus do if he were me? These are the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you. If you are a traveling nurse, there are things that God wants to do through you, traveling nurse, that would be the very thing he would do if he were in your place. The same is true if you're running a small business or you're selling insurance or you're working as a teacher or a cashier or you're raising children in the home. It is God manifesting his good works or his good fruit in and through you. Here's the second reality that will be true of a life connected to Jesus. It will experience God's rest. When my two girls were little, I was doing a lot more running then than I am now. And we bought a jogging stroller. This is one of these like tire inflated, heavy duty, collapsible things that barely fit in the back of our vehicle. Uh, But I would enter races and on at least two occasions, I ran a 5K pushing a jogging stroller. Now, the key there is that you have to remember to inflate the tires before the race. Once upon a time, Nikki and I were doing a day at Magic Kingdom, and we got off the tram with our lumpy jogging stroller, and I set it down, and I realized I had left all four tires deflated. That was not the best day in my marriage. 
wasn't a good day for me either because I took a lot of steps and sweat a lot with a jogging stroller that wouldn't move. But I was in the habit at that time of running with that jogging stroller and having my two little girls in the stroller in front of me. And I vividly remember one day in the hot Florida heat of probably 100 degrees, 98% humidity, pushing that jogging stroller with my two little girls up the only hill in Metro West where we lived. And I looked down and one of my little girls is sucking on her toes. And it dawned on me, if we are going to win that race, she's going to have nothing to do with it. She is propelled forward by the movement of someone behind her who is straining to do the work that she benefits from. Now, the illustration is good, but it is incomplete because the reality is that we do not simply suck on our toes while God does the work through us but we're invited to partner with him in the work. We're invited to be the branch connected to the vine that gets to experience both the productivity of God's movement and yet at the same time experience restedness in Christ because he is the doer. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit apart from me you can do nothing. A few moments ago, I referenced the book of Genesis, the, the creation of the world. And one of the interesting phrases that you would see in Genesis chapter 1 is that at the end of each day of creation, it says these words, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. Now, we think that the writer of Genesis got that backwards because the day works like this. There's morning and there, e- there is evening. The day in the Western mind frame begins at sunrise, not so in the Hebrew mindset. Based on the Genesis account, those who are practicing Jews understand the day to begin at sunset. And here's why this matters. The day does not begin with a get up and go work. The day begins with slow down and rest. In other words, we work from a position of being rested. Might we not benefit from this perspective? We who toil and labor and strain and have so much trouble shutting our minds off to understand that God created us, yes, to work, but to a work from a place of resting in his goodness and producing from it. What I mean is this, you can be fruitful without being frantic. It's not not that the the, the physical work that we do sometimes isn't strenuous. If you work outdoors, if you are a roofer or you do landscaping or any other number, that is hard work, but it doesn't have to be hard on your soul. You don't have to be frantic and anxiety-riddled. If you run your own business, you don't need to worry that your ability to manage is completely what everything depends on. No, we understand that God is the source of it all. I happen to believe that Jesus was the most productive person who ever lived, accomplished more in 33 years than any of us will accomplish in a lifetime. And though Jesus was the most productive person who ever lived, he was also the most unhurried person who ever lived. There was an ease about the life of Jesus. It's the reason that he could take little children into his arms and bless them when his followers said, Jesus, you don't have time for this. You've got more important work to get to. 
The the unhurried nature of Jesus is the reason he could sit down at a well with a Samaritan woman who had been rejected by her own village and take time to explain to her how life in the kingdom of God works. And it's the reason the writers of the New Testament tell us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Jesus had great work to do, but he understood that his work was simply an overflow of the work of the Father in him. In other words, for a little while, Jesus the vine demonstrated what it looks like to be a branch. He did that for us. We need to understand that the fate of our business, the fate of our economics, the fate of our family, the fate of our church is not dependent on our own strength and toil. While we sleep, Christ builds his kingdom. And so we can experience the rest of God even as we work with God. The fact that this is true for Jesus is the reason we can put great confidence in the words of Jesus who gave us this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now this is a great paradox because in the same breath, Jesus is inviting us to take on his yoke, which is an instrument of labor for a mule or an ox, and saying, in doing so, you'll experience rest. How in the world does that work? Well, it works in this way. When Jesus showed up and the religious leaders were kind of calling the shots and running the show, Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and said, they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He once said to those Pharisees, you put heavy burdens on people's backs and you don't lift a single finger to help them. The way of Jesus is so very different. The yoke of Jesus, the assignment of Jesus for your life, though it will require some work, though it may at times be difficult, it should never cause soul anguish. We should never get to the point of burnout. Because if the Spirit of God is working in and through us, our labor can be a labor of love and we can experience God's rest even as we work. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I know my own life and I know enough of you that my hunch is this. We don't resist being a branch to Jesus' vine because it's difficult to do that. It really is not difficult. We resist it because it requires dependence and we don't like to depend on anything. The, the high holy day of the American calendar is July 4th, when we celebrate our independence. There's almost no ideal that is higher in the minds of the American civilization than liberation. The idea that we can pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps. In the nation of Belize, where I just came from, they celebrate their independence on September 21st, 1981. And in many nations of the world, this same reality is celebrated, the day that they became independent. And let me add that when it comes to geopolitics, independence is a good thing. I don't think any of us want to, I hope none of us want to go back to a day when the rich nations of the world subjugated the poor nations of the world and they had to pay tribute. We don't want to go back there. But what is good when it comes to national identity, independence, is a death blow to the spiritual life. When we believe that our job as Christians is to become so self-sufficient and self-sustaining that we no longer need a regular diet of God's word. 
We, we no longer need to sit humbly in prayer before the Father and say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we think that we can do the job, if it is to be, it is up to me, this is the antithesis of life in Christ. Life in Christ is about dependence on God. Number three, the reality of the life connected to Jesus is that it embodies God's Word. There's a a video circulating at this time, and you may have seen it, is of a well-known politician claiming that the Bible is his favorite book. And yet, when prompted by the interviewers to answer what is his favorite verse in the Bible, the individual cannot do so. They try to help him out by saying, do you prefer Old Testament or New Testament? He says, I like them both equally. And what the individual is betraying is that though he claims to esteem the Word of God, he probably very rarely, if ever, reads it and even less lives it in his life. And we can't throw stones because the same is true of most Christians and most churches. None of us would say, oh no, I don't really believe the Word of God. Or I wish the preacher would stop preaching from the Word of God. The problem is that we rarely read it, and even more rarely do we live it. To embody the words of God means that we don't simply hear them and they bounce off. We don't simply read them and they bounce away but that we both hear, read, and receive the words of God such that they fill our minds and change the trajectory of our life. Listen to how much Jesus emphasizes this in the vine branch analogy. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 10, If you keep my commandments, which is to do the words of Jesus, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, Jesus is saying it is not enough simply to hear the words. They need to come into our lives in such a way that they begin to transform us. Some of you would remember the parable that Jesus told of the wise and foolish builders. One built his house on a firm foundation such that when the storms of life inevitably came, the house stayed firm because it was built on a solid rock. The other builder was the foolish one who built his house on sand, and when those same storms came into his life, the house fell with a great crash because the foundation wasn't solid. What these two men had in common is that both heard the words of Jesus. The difference is only one put them into action. Only one embodied the words of Christ into their life. Everything that you do, whether in faith or in flesh, is carried out in your body. Now, this is somewhat obvious and somewhat abstract at the same time. Here's what I mean. There is nothing that you do that doesn't first become a thought in your mind. I mean, other than the doctor hitting your knee so it moves forward, everything else we do, we do with thought. When something enters into your mind, it has gained a stronghold in your body. And the inevitable outcome is that that concept or that idea, if not cut out, if not banished, if not put away, will eventually fill your mind such that your body will be a slave to the idea. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you the man who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. He's talking about the inevitability of a life who has been captured by evil thoughts, manifesting those thoughts through the body, through the things they look at, the things they talk about, the things that they do. Young people, there, there's a, a common expression that goes garbage in, garbage out. You, you can't nurture it in your mind and it not find its way into your body. Unforgiveness has a physical toll on lives of people. You know people who are, who are racked with anger, stress, having heart issues. Why? Because concepts have captured their mind such that it is changing in a negative way their body. When Jesus talks about the vine and the branch, he's saying what should be happening, what is happening for those who are connected to Christ is that the opposite is happening. That the words of God and in particular the words of Jesus are so filling our minds through reading and memorizing and meditating on and studying that they, can, they have the stronghold that now our actions, the things we look at, talk about, think about, and do, reflect the life of God in and through us. That is what it means to produce good fruit, fruit that will last. If the words of Jesus are not changing the things you think about, the things you look at, and the things you say, they are not changing you. No matter how much lip service you give to your reverence for Scripture, if it isn't manifesting itself in the way that you use your body, your time, and your resources, then it is a farce. You are not being transformed. It requires the words of Jesus to do the work. Here's the fourth and final reality we'll look at today of the life connected to Jesus is that it happily, joyfully evades God's judgment. I want to remind you of the setting into which Jesus was speaking these words. The disciples are seeing healthy vines producing good fruit, but they are also seeing, perhaps smelling, and even feeling the heat of burn piles that are filled up with branches who had become disconnected to the vines, therefore no longer producing fruit, and as a result were thrown into the burn pile. And as the disciples are experiencing this immersive teaching experience, they hear these words, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. Then the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now let me ask a question that's probably come into the mind of many of us who were raised in kind of conservative, traditional Christian circles. The question that probably comes to your mind as it did mine is, is Jesus talking about hell? Right? Jesus references on several occasions this idea of the, the burn pile outside of the city of Jerusalem and that being the final destination of those who live apart from God. Is, is that what Jesus is doing here? And my answer would be not primarily, but yes, partly. I, I think what Jesus is primarily doing, what he's first doing, is describing the outcome of a life that is lived apart from God. And in a word, what Jesus is saying is that such a life is wasted. A branch that isn't connected to the vine cannot produce fruit. And a branch that no longer has the ability to produce fruit is not good for anything. The, the, the natural place for such a branch is to throw it into the burn pile and let it be disintegrated there. Jesus is always more invested in the condition of the soul than in the destination of the soul. 
And I think what Jesus is implying here is that when a person lives apart from God, which I need to say this, is the natural condition of every person. Nobody comes into the world on their way to heaven. That's why the Bible says that what is needed is to repent. To repent is to be moving in one direction toward death and say, I'm going to turn, I'm going to go in a new direction toward life. Jesus' interest is in that happening in the soul. But what happens in the soul will eventually manifest itself in the eternal destination. I might say it this way. If you get on the turnpike and start driving 80, 85, 90, 95 miles an hour north, you're not going to arrive in Miami, no matter what you tell me about where you're headed. And the person who lives a life apart from God, who is perfectly content to be a branch broken from the vine, who sees no value or benefit to being connected to Jesus, would not suddenly get to the doors of heaven and go, this is what I want. They've already demonstrated what they want. Maybe Dallas Willard can say it more clearly than I've been saying. This is what Dallas says in Renovation of the Heart. No one chooses in the abstract to go to hell or even to be the kind of person who belongs there. But their orientation towards self leads them to become the kind of person for whom away from God is the only place for which they are suited. It is a place they would, in the end, choose for themselves rather than come to humble themselves before God and accept who He is. Might say it this way, perhaps the judgment of God is little less than God's final stamp of approval on the life that we set out to live apart from Him all along. It's man getting what man wanted in the end. In another place, Dallas says that we are becoming now the people we will be forever. That's what Jesus is interested in. Who are, who are you becoming? What is the condition of your soul? This is why Jesus never preached hellfire and brimstone the way some of us heard hellfire and brimstone when we were younger. The preacher that would pound the pulpit and, and get out the sweat rag and, and entice people with threats of the flames of hell and people would come forward in droves and the problem is you can get people to pray a prayer or walk an aisle under threat of hell. But it's really hard to get them connected to Jesus in a life-giving way out of fear. So Jesus never used hellfire and brimstone. He spoke of hell, but here's two things that you may not realize. Jesus only spoke of hell to religious people. He spoke of hell to the people who thought they were least in danger of it. He said, you're the ones who have missed the kingdom of God. And you're the ones shutting the kingdom of God in people's faces. That doesn't mean that hell is not a reality, but it just means that Jesus knew the invitation to life in him was what transforms a person. It's why he didn't chase down the rich young ruler. It says Jesus went away sad because the guy didn't want to be his follower. And he didn't say, hold on, rich young ruler. You'll go to hell. If the rich young ruler, if any man or woman in the world today doesn't choose Jesus on the merit of Jesus, they wouldn't choose him under any circumstances. So Jesus didn't use hell to manipulate. I think I said I had two points. That was really just my only point about that. He didn't use it as a threat. Eternal life is not about rewards and punishments. Eternal life is about a perfect and permanent connection to God and the community of the redeemed. 
God is doing a work in the lives of followers of Jesus. We call that sanctification. He's making us ready to live in a world where greed and anger and lust and self-centeredness have no place and to want to stay in such a kingdom where we're happily content to let someone else run the universe and we simply enjoy the good life forever that he has called us to live. The psalmist said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. I want to leave you with two things, a vision and a challenge. Here is the vision that I want to paint in your mind. Some of you would be honest enough, at least with yourselves and maybe with a trusted friend, to say, I'm wasting my life. (laughs) You might be growing a business. You might be raising a family. You might be making a lot of money. But you would recognize that the the focus of your life, the, the obsessive drive of your life is all toward things that will not live beyond your life. A very wise person once said, just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And some of you would be honest enough to know I'm living a wasted life. Can I tell you that at age 15, that was what created the turning point in my own life. I believed God loved me and I accepted that. I believed that Jesus died and rose again. But when I looked at the life of a 15-year-old who was lustful and self-centered and lazy and sarcastic, I went, man, I don't like the me that I'm becoming. I don't like the trajectory of a life that will have nothing to show for it in eternity. And when I heard the words of Jesus, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I said my yes to Jesus. I want to create a vision in your mind for a life that doesn't just say yes to Jesus through the walking of an aisle or praying a prayer, but says yes to a life connected to the source of life. What would it look like, husbands and fathers, for you to commit to being a branch connected to the vine that lives a life of producing good fruit, what would that look like in your marriage and for your children? Women who are married, what, what would it look like for you to commit to being a, a branch connected to the vine that is Jesus? What would the outcome be for your home and your family as you say, God, whatever good fruit you want to do in and through me, let it be done in Jesus' name. Business owners, employees and employers, what would it look like to be less obsessed with the work and more concerned about the good works of Jesus coming through your life. I have a dream that this church would become a place where there are branches going out into the theme parks and going out into the storefronts and going into the neighborhoods and and good fruit is being produced so that as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that men might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That when they taste the fruit of our lives, they see that God is good. So let me challenge you. If you look at your life and you don't see the good fruit of God being produced, you don't see so much of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you look at your life and you see more of irritability and anger and unforgiveness and greed, there's one of two reasons and there's not another. Either you're a branch connected to Jesus that needs some cleaning and pruning to be done. It's possible for stuff to get into the branch that that create challenges for the fruit to be produced as it ought to be. And Jesus says, in that case, you need a good pruning. 
You need to allow the good father, the gardener, to to cut some things back from your life. That might be removing a relationship. That might be removing a a work situation. But most likely, that's going to be removing something that's taken hold in your life that is producing death and not life. And would you say, God, cut that out of me, that I might bear good fruit in your name. The other reason you might not be producing good fruit is that you're not actually connected to the vine. You've gone to church, you've done good works, you might have even gone on a missions trip or sung a worship song, but you've never come to a place of saying, God, I have full confidence in you. I'm I'm integrating my life into yours by faith that you will sustain me and that you will produce in me the life that is truly life. And it may be that some of you today need to say, hey, I, I need to be connected to Jesus by faith. I'm that branch that's in danger of getting burned in the burn pile and I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to have to fear the judgment of God. I want to boldly walk into my future knowing that I belong to Jesus by grace through faith. So we're going to close the message in this way. Would you close your eyes where you're at? And I'm going to be the only person looking around. And I want to ask those of you that would say, Chris, I'm looking at the fruit in my life and I'm recognizing There's not a lot of good fruit hanging on that branch. And you know the reason is that you've allowed some things into your life that need to be cut out of your life by the gracious hand of God. If that's you, follower of Jesus, would you slip your hand up so I can pray for you? They're going up. I see them. Yep. Could be anger. Could be unforgiveness. Could be greed. I see those hands. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. Go ahead and put those hands down. And I really want to focus on those who would say, Chris, I I don't think the issue is that I just got some stuff going on. I don't know that I've ever actually been connected to Jesus through faith. I've strained, I've tried to produce, I've I've tried to do enough, but I've found it fruitless. And Chris, I, I want to, for the first time maybe ever, by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, I'm going to be grafted into a branch that can actually have confidence in Jesus and live from that place. If that's you, would you slip your hand up so I can pray for you as well? I see that hand and I'm, yep. Anybody else? I need to receive Jesus as my Savior. Yes, you as well. I'll pray for you as well. If that's you, if you're in that second group with every eye closed still, would you come find me after the service and let me know? I want to welcome you into the family of God. The scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so grateful for every person in the room today, those watching uh, on the video stream. God, I, I pray that for everyone who is recognized and affirmed, I need some things to change in my life. I need, I need to go in some different directions. I've allowed some things that don't look like the life of God and the person of Christ. God, would you just cut those things out of their life? Be it painful, be it hard, and even if it takes time, God, would you do the work? Would you be that good gardener making sure that what comes out of our lives is good fruit? And God, for the few that have said, this is something I need to, for the first time, put a confidence in Jesus as my vine, my source of life, and receive him by faith. God, would you be faithful to do what you say you will do? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Help them in that endeavor. 
Let your grace come to them in a transformative way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.